from the Society for Nautical Research in partnership with Lloyd's Register Foundation, I'm Sam Willis and this is the Mariner's Mirror podcast, the world's number one podcast dedicated to all of maritime history. Hello everyone and welcome to the Mariner's Mirror podcast. Today we continue our mini-series on Maritime Africa. If you haven't heard the previous episodes, do please go back and listen to those. We found out about whaling in Africa, the terrifying skeleton coast of Namibia and its many shipwrecks, the hugely important role of African canoe men in trade on the African coast. And today we head to the east, a part of Africa I've spent some time in, and I love it for its clear international flavour and trading past. We're finding out today about the Swahili coast. The Swahili coast is fascinating for its mix of African and Arabic cultures and the way that the two have been bound together by maritime trade across the Indian Ocean. There is also a clear Chinese influence here as well, reflecting historic maritime trade routes thousands of miles longer. To find out more, I spoke with Dr Stephanie Wynne-Jones from the University of York. Her work in Africa explores the deep links between people, landscapes, history and material culture and has directed a series of excavation and survey projects in eastern Africa, including a study of early towns on Zanzibar and large-scale excavations at the World Heritage Site of Songo Mnara, which we will find out more about soon in a forthcoming episode. As ever, I hope you enjoy listening to her as much as I enjoyed talking with her. Here is the fascinating and ridiculously well-travelled Stephanie. Stephanie, thank you very much indeed for joining me today. Sam, it's a pleasure. It's really nice to be here. Well, let's start with a basic question. What is the Swahili Coast? The Swahili Coast is a name that's often given to Africa's eastern coast and it, Africa's eastern shore, which borders the Indian Ocean. And that runs from Somalia in the Horn of Africa in the north all the way down to Mozambique in the south. But it's also associated with what we're going to talk about today, which is the Swahili culture, the Swahili language, with a whole sort of series of cultural elements. So it's a geography, but it's also a culture. Why is it important? Well, it's important for all, for all sorts of reasons, really. I mean, the Indian Ocean world was a really vibrant area of interaction and trade and cultural influence and travel over millennia, um, long before the Europeans got there and um, started sort of changing the shape of the region. And the African coast, the East African coast, was a key part of that. And uh, it was a way in which Africa and Africans were interacting with the Islamic world and as far afield as China. Um, it was a way that Africa was integrated into huge economic markets but also there's been a profound cultural influence that has come from those many years um, of interaction and you see it for example in the fact that the east african coast today is islamic and you have this uh, area of islam which which goes all the way along that coast when areas further inland these days are now christian but you've got this long-standing muslim tradition on the coast. So it's really shaped the character of East Africa today. Yeah. 
I'm lucky enough to have I've been to Malindi and I've been to Lamu oh, um, so I've, I've, I have explored little bits of it and um, I, what always struck me was the um, the mosques the mm. eight, there, you know there are a handful of ancient mosques so they're always like maritime mosques aren't they so close to the so close to the sea there um, so who were the Swahili people where did they come from <laughs> well, this is quite a vexed question, actually. <laughs> yep. um, and there's a there's a long answer and a short answer. Um, the the shorter version is that they were Africans, and linguistic evidence, so thinking about the Swahili language, now shows that they were Bantu Africans. So there's a Bantu grammar that underlies Swahili, and they were people that moved to the coast and started trading around the seventh century. AD, mm-hmm. although there was earlier trade on that coast and that had a slightly different character. But then those people were really, they were influenced, obviously, by uh, interaction across the Indian Ocean. They converted to Islam quite early. There's evidence for Islam from the 8th century, as you say, some of these early mosques. But uh, they all. this also was a place where people came to settle. There was a lot of movement and mobility. And so we do have the movement of people from the Arab world, from the Persian Gulf, um, from India, sort of coming into the region, settling, interacting, perhaps leaving again. There's the, And the character of Swahili culture now and the Swahili people now um, has integrated, you know, some of those influences and also some of those people over the last, you know, millennium and a half. Yeah. You said that the earlier pattern of trade was different. How was that different? Was it um, uh, less uh, far afield? Were they trading in different um, objects and materials? We know very little about it. Uh, So there are mentions of an early metropolis, it's called, in um, a document called the Periplus of the Erythraean Sea, which is a Greco-Roman document which talks about the Indian Ocean world. And they talk about this metropolis in East Africa called Raptor. And so thinking about sort of the first century AD, and at that point they talk about this site where people would sail down the East African coast and trade with people that they met at Raptor. And it's named mm. for, it's named after the sewn boats that they had in that region, actually. Mm. Um, the word Raptor comes from the word for sewn. And, but archaeologists have spent a lot of time looking for Raptor <laughs> um, and with, with very little success. And that, But there are traces of contact at that time. And And so what we think these days is that Raptor probably wasn't uh, a sort of settled town or or trading port. Instead, it was more of a sort of seasonal place where people would come to do trade and then probably leave again. And so Mm. that trade would have been in some of the products of uh, East Africa, things like mangrove and um, ambergris, perhaps um, metals, things like iron and tortoiseshell and all sorts of sort of wonderful things that you can find there. Let me just jump in. Why was mangrove important? Mangrove is really important. It's a fabulous wood for building with. Mm. But also, uh, the East Africans were trading a lot with places like the Persian Gulf where they don't have any wood. And so this wood for building was actually an enormous... was an enormous object of trade and actually not just not just mangrove east african hardwoods in general were used for example for shipbuilding and so mm. some of these resources are fabulous they, they don't rot. yeah they, they don't rot that's that's good news and ambergris let's talk about ambergris it was, <laughs> was with a, um can you explain what it is first for those of us who don't know Yes. So it's a secretion um, that builds up in the stomach of a whale. (laughs) 
and and then is sort of expelled by whales. I mean, you can sometimes whales are killed to take ambergris from their stomach, but they actually also it washes up on beaches, and you get yeah. these lumps of um, substance, which is it, it's made it's, out of squid beaks, I think. Is it? <laughs> it's like that's the that's the one bit of the squid. So so the whales eat the squid. The 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 one bit they can't process is the squid beak, which then sits in their stomach over over um, huge amounts of time and turns into this rather magical stuff. Oh well, that's fascinating. Now you've taught me something. That's great. But yeah, and it and it has a, a strong smell. It's really aromatic, um, yeah. and so so it's quite a valuable sort of way of transmitting fragrance as well as sort of and sort of almost like an incense in its own right yeah i think it locks fragrance is, mm, is one exactly. of the other things it does so you can you can make a perfume but the the smell will, will disappear over time but if you if you add ambergris to it it kind of it hangs out so it's 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 the the real essence of perfume i've i've yeah. um i've got a little bit it's very it's very expensive um yes, it and, is. It, and it and incredibly rare uh, it's I've, interesting that they were trading with that at, at that time. I've been I've been in boats actually with people who have, have found a piece of ambergris, and you really know Ooh. you've found it because it really you can really smell it. Um, and yeah. there's a lot of excitement on a boat <laughs> when a piece of ambergris is found because it's still really valuable actually. Yeah, and it floats. Mm. So so the the, um, the rotting carcass of the whale um, often they the whales die after mm. a long 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 life the the carcass rots is is pulled apart by sea creatures and birds and stuff leaving the ambergris yeah, so there's this whole kind of process of um corruption that has to happen before you get it it's um it's one of these these really remarkable processes yeah. in nature and it's i think it's more expensive per pound or you know in volume terms than gold now that uh, doesn't is, surprise me yeah no and gold sinks so it's <laughs> quite difficult to find in the middle yeah. of the sea um, it doesn't wash up on beaches but i will say that gold also was an export of the swahili coast but probably not until mm. much later so it became famous for exporting gold coming from the zimbabwe plateau actually but those right. trade networks became established sort of into the second millennium so so mm. gold was available also this question, let's go back to it, the uh, the question of um, where the Swahili came from. It's a, it's a question that's sort of susceptible to all sorts of political mm. interpretations, isn't it? Could you talk a little about that? Yes. So when archaeologists first began working on the Swahili coast, which was in the 1950s and 60s, really, in a colonial setting and the first archaeologists were colonial officials in Kenya and in Tanganyika as it was then they encountered these towns Swahili towns which as I've said were Islamic they had these wonderful mosques and also palaces and houses built of coral and they have a real sort of Indian Ocean flavor and yep. they were interpreted by those colonial archaeologists as the remains of Arab settlements on the coast of Africa because it was part of effectively quite a racist archaeology which didn't yeah. sort of believe that Africans would have created this kind of town and a lot of the early archaeology was interpreted in that light and, and it's quite susceptible to that because these towns are full of evidence for Muslim practice, they're full of wonderful trade goods from across the Indian Ocean world. They constructed an argument for sort of towns effectively of Arabs um, or of Arab rulers who maybe intermarried locally and who were trading the goods of Africa out into the Indian Ocean world. But from the 1980s 
and really the 1990s onwards, there's been a lot of archaeology, a lot of it done by East Africans themselves, and which have looked at the roots of Swahili towns and sort of excavated down into the foundations of some of those fabulous mosques and found precursors to them. And some of them built in Wattle and Daub, like with very different character in the sort of earlier levels, but also a really sort of African bedrock of material culture, which doesn't change through the period. And so, um, you know, the things people were eating, the pots they were using, the ways they were producing crafts, um, all of this has this really long continuity into which you see these cultural influences coming. And they've really made an argument, a very convincing argument for the African, the sort of indigenous African roots of Swahili culture. And yeah. I've already referred to the linguistics because that the linguistic picture has started confirming that, uh, or for, in the 1980s actually, confirmed that by demonstrating really comprehensively that Swahili had a Bantu grammar and then it has a lot of what's called loan words, these Arab loan words which have come in from various places which um, can make it feel, uh, give it a sort of Arab flavour, but it's very much an African language. So this whole sort of picture came together. Uh, tell us about the Bantu language, where's that from and, and how is that distinctive? Uh, well, Bantu is not so much a language as a language family. And actually, most of the languages of sub-Saharan Africa are Bantu languages, mm. sort of all across in a swathe from sort of Central and West Africa all the way across to East Africa and then down into Southern Africa. There's a, a whole series of African languages which are from the Bantu family. And they are thought to have sort of spread through Africa in what is known as the Bantu migration, which is a big phenomenon that can be sort of traced through archaeology across the African continent. And the, I mean, originally Bantu languages came from a homeland in Central Africa, um, sort of Cameroon sort of area, but they now, they've spread through various means and at various times over the last sort of 3,000 years to cover much of Africa. And, and that's where we see the sort of base for settlement in East Africa and on the East African coast is among those groups. So maritime trade was obviously a clearly important part of the Swahili culture. And you mentioned sewn boats. Do we know very much about how they went about doing their trade? Uh, yes and no. Um, we don't have a lot of evidence for the Swahili as sailors. So talking about boat technology, we don't we don't really have anything archaeologically that can tell That's us amazing. about that. I mean, nothing at all. <laughs> no, um, not not in the archaeological record. I mean, there are, uh, I mean, sewn boats are, are quite a common thing in the Indian Ocean world. So Arab boats were sewn as well, and so there are wrecks in the Indian Ocean. There's the famous Belaton wreck of the ninth century, which was wrecked off Indonesia. Mm, and, I've not heard of this one. Uh, and it's actually, oh, it's fascinating. It's an it's an Arab style boat. So it was probably built um, in the Arab world. It's been reconstructed actually in Oman. So it's probably from that sort of area. And it's a fabulous wreck for all sorts of reasons. It 
the cargo it contains it's full of all these chinese ceramics which are all sort of stacked up they're obviously a they're obviously a trade good and they're they're designed to be traded onwards but then it's also full of all these personal possessions of all the crew which are a sort of mix of items from around the indian ocean rim a lot of them from china sort of bronze mirrors and things but also sort of goods from places that they visited along their travels and lots of things that were obviously just designed for life on board boat, on board ship, not just for trade. But the thing that's really interesting about Bellaton Wreck for Africanists is that the wood itself is African. So although it's this Arab boat, it's been constructed from African hardwoods. And so it's like this little microcosm of the Indian Ocean world in boat mm. form. Yeah. So I suppose we don't we don't know whether it was built in Africa or whether they traded the wood and then built it um, in the Arab world. Yes, or if it was mended in Africa, perhaps you know, the, mm. like you can imagine the life of this boat, sort of traveling the Indian Ocean Rim, picking things up as it went, and also perhaps having to be mended or, yeah, being reconstructed in different places. But I mean, aside from those kind of hints, we don't know a lot about the Swahili as mariners. We know that they did travel. There are histories which which talk about uh, African boats in Gujarat for example and there are stories we know that the king of the Maldives was converted to Islam by an East African in the 12th century so we know there was travel people were moving mm. people made the pilgrimage even to Mecca so so we know people were moving around but we don't have a lot of evidence for how that was happening How would you like to look 5 years younger in a clinical study People that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. No. We've talked about wood. What about cotton? How do you make your sails if you're a Swahili mariner? They did. They grew cotton. Actually, cotton was quite a cloth in general, was quite a major item of trade around this world. And we know that certain Swahili towns were producing cotton on quite a large scale. Places actually in Lamu, where you've been, the, the site of Pate um, is famous for cotton production well into the historic period. Kilwa in southern Tanzania, where I've worked a lot, was a big site for the production of cotton. And we see evidence for that in the archaeological record. We find cotton, <laughs> cotton seeds in the botanical mm. record. But we also find evidence for the spinning and weaving of cotton with spindle whorls, which are quite a ubiquitous find, actually, across these sites. Oh, wonderful. So they were trading wood, they were trading canvas, gold. What about people? Were slaves, was slavery a problem? Uh, yes. Um, I think it's almost certain <laughs> that 
slaves were leaving the African continent through the Swahili coast. Slavery is notoriously difficult to track through archaeological means. And so you don't really see the evidence for people leaving the coast. Um, There are historical texts which give us an insight into this. I mean, we know that there were African slaves in the Persian Gulf in the sort of 8th, 9th century, but partly because of the famous Zanj revolt when the slaves of that region sort of rose up and the Zanj was the Arab name for East Africa. So there mm. were, we know about sort of slave rebellions with slaves that were coming from the African continent. And presumably many of these were coming out through the Swahili coast, as well as sort of out through the Horn of Africa and maybe across the Red Sea. Mm. Let's just talk briefly about why the Swahili coast. Why Why there? Why did this happen there? I mean, we've mentioned the access, you know, good, good, good soil for cotton and they yeah. had the wood. Um, what about the, the kind of the wind systems? Why does it make it a good place for mariners? The Indian Ocean in general is a fabulous place. It's really conducive to travel and to trade. So there's a system of monsoons in the Indian Ocean world, monsoons and currents, which undergo a seasonal reversal. So for half the year, the winds are blowing from the southwest and so they would carry you up from the East African coast sort of around the rim of the Indian Ocean, if you can imagine that, round to around the Arabian Peninsula to the Persian Gulf, maybe as far as sort of northern India. And then for the other and then there's sort of a period of, of quiet and then for the other half of the year they start blowing from the northeast and so they could take you back again. So there's this wonderful system whereby you could travel there and back again within the space of a year and i also really like to think about what happens in between because even though we sort of talk about that in the you know in sort of pre-modern times that's a that's a wonderful opportunity for journeying it's a very quick turnaround effectively on a travel around the indian ocean but it's also it's still a year and so there's still these people who are spending a lot of their time at sea and then they are in port and they're waiting for the wind to change and so at any one time presumably you'd have visitors who were there who had to be accommodated who would have brought ideas with them and things with them and vice versa and things that you could take and and ideas you could bring back from other places and they could be there for you know a few months at a time so i think i think it's really interesting in terms of the ways that would develop a culture as well the movement of people it's interesting, actually. It poses a bit of an archaeological and historical problem when you've got to study a people that move all the time. So if you just do it on the east coast of Africa, you're, there's a there's a the blank of all the people who aren't there. They're, yeah. they're somewhere else. <laughs> yes, that's true. That yeah, is true. Diffi- difficult to do. Um, so how do you study the um, the Swahili culture? Me personally. Yeah, go on. Um, Well, so I'm an archaeologist and the thing I'm really interested in is thinking about daily life effectively and sort of human experience in the past. So what was it like to live in a Swahili town? And that's why you hear me talking about, you know, the experience of having all these people turn up and having to house them, because I'm really interested in the ways that those sort of played out and created a particular society. And what I do to investigate that is largely to excavate. And for example, uh, I've recently finished a large scale excavation at a site called Songomnara, which is 
a twin site to Kilwa Kisiwani on the southern coast of Tanzania. We're going to find out about those two in the, in, in the next episode. Oh, really? We're doing um, specific ones. We're talking to Mercy and Grant. They're going to tell us all about those. So you're not allowed to spoil the surprise about those two sites. Oh, OK. I won't. But what I will tell you is that um, what I've tried to do, what we have tried to do there, is to use, is to sort of look at the whole suite of everything from architecture to, you know, what was in the latrines to sort of and then and to think about sort of spatial practice across the site what people dropped you know when they're on their way to mosque and that kind of thing and use a whole series of methods to try and think about the ways people lived within a town and the ways that you know when they got all these imports what what did they do with them like why were they even bothering to to engage in this trade you know why were the imports valuable when they were creating objects for export how were they doing that? Who was doing it? Where? At what scale? And so sort of trying to think about the sort of rhythms of daily life within the towns. Um, can you just talk very briefly about the extant architecture, the, the architecture that survives? Because when you say you're doing excavation, I don't want people to imagine you're doing it in a kind of a flat field no. with nothing visible, because that is not what we're talking about with the Swahili coast. It, no. I mean, some of the survival is magnificent. Yes, isn't it? exactly. Um well, so on the Swahili coast, we have these sites, which, as I said, developed from sort of 7th century origins with architecture built of wattle and daub, so sort of wood and, and, and earth, um, sort of packed earth. But over the years, these developed into really elaborate townscapes. And one of the big technological advances there was when they began to build in coral so using coral stone which you can which is the bedrock so you can get sort of coral rubble from under the ground but also diving on the reefs to to bring back live blocks of coral which can be really easily carved and using that to construct uh, well at first they they constructed mosques and tombs that were built from this sort of more durable material and then uh, and that was in about the 11th century and then from the 14th century onwards we get domestic architecture so houses and palaces built in coral as well and so over time this is built up into these what are called stone towns these quite elaborate coral built townscapes with often several mosques and very large and elaborate houses built of coral with lime plaster which is created by burning coral so uh, and they and they would have been plastered white and you would have had these sort of stone houses as they're called which created yeah a coral townscape I just have a, a sort of memory on the fringe of my of my brain here of me blundering around inland from Melinda uh-huh. somewhere and and finding um we were filming there and there was uh, an area of uh, there were pillars and there were there was kind of loads of, of clearly manufactured stones mark horton we talked about him earlier he's definitely excavated there i'm just wondering mm. if have i given you enough information so <laughs> inland from Melinda actually that would be um Getty, but Mark, and which is a fa- actually it was the first Swahili town to be excavated, and oh it's a fabulous town on the coast of Kenya. Mark Horton excavated at uh, his big famous excavations were at Shanga, which is in Lamu. So it might have been oh, when it. you were in Lamu. That's it. Yeah. So that uh, Shanga is a stone town um, on Pate Island in the Lamu Archipelago. 
and yeah, yeah, yeah and it's and it's an amazing townscape actually it was abandoned in the 15th century and so there's this preserved townscape of dozens of you know stone houses all around a sort of central area with this elaborate friday mosque in the center and it was excavated yeah. through the 1980s by mark horton who actually um was a real pioneer in Swahili archaeology. And that was one of the places where not only did he talk about Swahili towns and who they were trading with and, you know, the the sort of complex nature of that society, he also excavated underneath that Friday mosque and found successive iterations of a mosque going all the way back to the 8th century. So it's the one site really to this day where we have that really continuous tradition of Islam and that evidence for really early conversion of at least a portion of the population. There are also cemeteries. I definitely went to cemeteries there and I think that I went to the tomb of a Chinese seafarer. Yes, that's possible. There was a Chinese wreck off Pate um, and actually still today there's a population on Pate Island that identify as the descendants of the Chinese sailors that were well, that they've were been shipwrecked. genetically tested. Yeah, they, do you know um, they have? Yeah, <laughs> that yeah. um, a Chinese project came and took swabs from the population of Pate Island, and I'm not 100 percent sure of the results um, because they were published in Chinese and in China. But I know that some members of the community were found to have Chinese ancestry and in fact one yeah. was given a scholarship to go off and study in Beijing so yes yeah, uh, 500 years later yeah. <laughs> um, and I am um, I definitely met uh, at least two or three of these people who um, who, who had been told by the Chinese uh, that they had um, Chinese ancestry yeah. but I think we need to bear in mind that it was the Ch- in China's interest to identify people <laughs> on the, the east coast of Africa which had uh, Chinese ancestry just before so they bought the rights to uh, mining yeah. well, Kenyan minerals yeah but um but yeah I mean I don't I don't know the I don't know the detail of that study because I haven't been able to read the publication but but yeah like you I've met people who have been told they have Chinese ancestry so well I mean I'll tell you what he looked Chinese the chap I was talking to (laughs) extraordinary um um, but uh, fascinating stuff um is this wonderful culture under threat is it being looked after uh, well, the Swahili themselves are are still a group of people who live on the east coast of Africa and some Swahili towns are still thriving urban centres. So if you think of places like Mombasa, Zanzibar, actually Lamu, these yep. are places with a very long and deep history and they are also still centres, often still um, sort of mercantile centres, actually, and centres of trade, or in Zanzibar's case, centres of tourism. And so in that sense, Swahili culture is is thriving. I mean, it's it's different, of course, but it's it's still still there. <laughs> if you're talking about the preservation of the sites, there are lots yep. of challenges to the preservation of Swahili sites. Um, I mean, they're on a coast where sea level is rising. They're often right on the coast. Thinking about Kilwa, uh, where I've worked a lot. I mean, you'll probably hear about this from Grant and Mercy, but 
they've experienced a lot of um, very heavy rainfall recently and it started eroding some of the edges of the site and that kind of weather event combined with rising sea level is really difficult for these coastal sites. When I was working at Songham Nara actually the retaining wall of one of the cemeteries at the top of the at the top of the hill collapsed and actually human remains from some of those graves started spilling out. I mean, there were real sort of problems with shoring up these sites. I should say that in that cemetery, we did rebuild the retaining wall. But so there are environmental threats. There's also there's also a lack of capacity. It's quite expensive to maintain these sites. Coral is a material which naturally degrades. And so uh, you need to conserve the buildings if you want them to stay if you want them to stay for future generations and there can also be challenges with people living near the sites who perhaps want to farm those areas or um, might want to use some of the stone for building houses elsewhere and certainly with some really sort of marginalized and you know, poor communities, it's quite difficult to say, no, you need to preserve this archaeological site for, you know, future generations so you can't build a house or grow any food. You know, so there are some real contemporary concerns that butt up against conservation, I think, in lots of cases. Yeah. Well, it's all fascinating stuff. And thank you very much indeed for your time, Stephanie. I really enjoyed that episode. Yeah, of course. Me too. Thanks very much. Thank you all so much for listening. As ever, please remember that this podcast comes from both the Society for Nautical Research and the Lloyds Register Foundation. You can find the History and Education Centre of the Lloyds Register Foundation at hec.lrfoundation.org.uk, where you can find out all about their fascinating latest projects. In particular, I would check out Maritime Innovation in Miniature, where they are filming the world's finest ship models with the latest camera technology. Absolutely extraordinary stuff. Uh, the latest models come from the Barrow Inferness Dockyard Museum and they really are magnificent. And you can find out about the Society for Nautical Research at snr.org.uk where you can join up and you can get access to over a century's worth of maritime scholarship and all of the perks of membership including access to our brilliant online winter lecture series and you even get to come for our AGM and have dinner on board HMS Victory down in Portsmouth. A wonderful way of spending a little bit of money.